Welcome to part two of the Woodland Trust special. John Tucker, Director of Woodland Outreach. Welcome, John. Thank you. Great to be here. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a bit about yourself. So uh, I'm now in my 26th year with the Woodland Trust. I'm a forestry graduate from Bangor University, chartered forester, um, grew up on a tiny dairy farm on the Lizard Peninsula down in Cornwall. Um, I've worked in the field of sort of forestry, dabbling in arboriculture um, since about 1980, I think. So my 40th year involved with trees and woods. How wonderful. We've had um, other people from Bangor University as well on these podcasts. Uh, Mima Letts, for example. So it's just great to hear the legacy of Bangor University carrying on. But your current role with the Woodland Trust, which you've been doing for about 11 years now, is a um, Woodland Outreach Director. So what does that involve? Sounds hugely important right now. Yes. So probably about 14 years ago, um, the Woodland Trust took a major review about how it's progressing against its um, conservation objectives. And it really felt that if it wanted to make a significant difference, the model that it had been using up until then, which was of buying woodland itself or buying land to plant, simply wasn't going to achieve the kind of um, wide ranging changes that they wanted to see. So they felt you know, with 70% of the UK being farmed, that they really had to be able to work with a whole range of other landowners if they wanted to see that significant change come about. So my role was created. We've now got a team of people that uh, engage with local authorities, landowners, schools and communities, anybody who's really interested in creating woodland or restoring woodland. It's never been more important and in keeping with, um, for example, the World Economic Forum wants to plant one trillion trees by 2030 and our own government to set a target of 30,000 hectares of new woodlands by 2025. But really, don't we need to achieve that every year by 2050 to, to build us up from 13% tree cover and woodland cover to 17%? Is that of your view? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I guess, you know, I, you could say I'm in the twilight of my career now. Um, and it's a really exciting time to be around in the sort of the, the tree world. I mean, there's never been such a degree of interest in the function and the role that, that trees and woods can play. I think it's great having these very ambitious targets on the one hand, but I, I do worry about us getting into a numbers game about quantity over quality. But, you know, in the main, I, I think it's great that there is ambition there. There's ambition across all sorts of sectors to make a, a fundamental difference. So Climate Change Committee said last year, 30,000 hectares a year, until 2050, we are way off that, you know, UK-wide, I think we did 14,000 hectares last year. In England, they talk about a tree planting rate of 10,000 hectares a year. Uh, we did 1,420 hectares last year. So we need to do, in England, seven, eight, nine times more. It's great to have that ambition. I really worry 
that it needs fundamental structural change if we're going to get anywhere near it. Then. I absolutely agree with you. And many things I pick out from that. First of all, is it's not about quantity and numbers. It's actually about quality and the successful establishment of those trees. Yeah. Because it's such a, a, a media-friendly image to have a child plant a tree. And that's fantastic. I'm not taking anything away from that. Yeah. But if it isn't properly planned, if it's not the right tree for the right environment, if it isn't looked after, is it the right place to plant? You know, is it another irreplaceable habitat that we're planting on? And what are the social benefits of that woodland as well as the ecological benefits? That's why we need professionals, don't we, John? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> you know, I did a presentation last week and I was reflecting back on the you know, I'm of an age to remember the Terry Wogan tax sort of scandals back in the 1980s. When, well, so am I. I remember you know, that so, too. You know, and, and that really painted forestry, commercial, professional forestry, trees and woodlands in a really bad light. And it's taken us a long time to get beyond that. You know, and I, I certainly don't want to go back to that scenario again. But I think so much has changed since the 1980s. There's a hugely greater appreciation and understanding on the ecology, on the roles that woodlands have to play in terms of ecosystem services, but our own physical and mental well-being. And the Forestry Commission have been a real champion of, of opening up the woods. And of course, the Woodland Trust have always understood that. You've been going since 1972. And really how it affects people as much as wildlife is at the heart of what you do, isn't it? Yes, yeah. I, I was reflecting back on, um, you know, my career with the Woodland Trust. You know, I've done some really interesting things work-wise, but probably what has stood out the most is the people I've met along the way, the trees, you know, and they, the, the pleasure that you can bring to them, the changes in people's lives that it's made, that's the the bit that really I probably get the most pleasure out of. Oh, that's right, because you affect someone's heart and mind, and then they go and tell their friends. And they'll guess what I did today? Or oh, I'm working on this great project, and you're really starting a movement. And that is definitely happening. So, you know, we started chatting about the figures. 80% of the woodland targets for last year were in Scotland. Well, that's fabulous for Scotland, but... Let's see more in England and in Wales. And we started really saying, well, you know, we're not getting there. But movements do take a time to take effect. But in your role with the Woodland Trust, tell us about the nuts and bolts of, of what you're aiming to achieve and how you reach out to the community beyond your own land. There are all sorts of different ways and all sorts of different levels that we're operating at. So we have a, you know, a, a really good... Um, scheme for schools and communities where they can apply online for free tree packs that we distribute and we've learned some of the lessons from the early years about trying to give people much more advice about how to go to look at the site to understand the site to be clear on their objectives and so on we have the wonderful keith the leaf an online tool for for kids that you can design your own woodland and it talks about all the, the pitfalls to avoid um, how you check the site, how you get the spacing right and stuff like that. So we've got that element. We have um, something called the Moorwood Scheme, which is it was designed for those who want to plant smaller areas of woodland, generally under about three hectares, which 
fall below the radar of government grant schemes. And that's a, a cost sharing scheme between the Woodland Trust and the landowner. And then we go into bigger partnerships that we have with organisations like the, the Crofting Federation on the west coast of Scotland, um, Defence Estates we've worked with, and then a whole range of individual farmers and landowners. Something which I've really enjoyed over the last sort of eight years has been the interest in agroforestry. So really combining farming and forestry, you know, that's probably the, the area that I get real excitement about at the moment. Some of the innovation that's coming through there in things like tree fodder and the importance, you know, what you can gain in terms of medicinal and nutritional value um, from tree fodder for livestock. You know, some of this sort of research that's going on is really interesting. And of course, tree fodder for livestock is, is nothing new, is it? It, no, was, it really no. was a traditional practice. And that's why we have pollards on yeah. our field boundaries, particularly ash was fed to cattle. And we're just almost relearning something that our ancestors could have told us. Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed yesterday just looking in great detail at your websites and going back to the comments at the schools. Um, you have some great information online. It's it's really engaging. And I encourage listeners to go onto the Woodland Trust website and have a look at the videos that you've got there of, of what to think about when you're planting, how to plant and importantly, how to look after it. So it was really, really clear. And you have an award system as well, don't you, for the school? We have a Green Schools Award that's been going for a number of years. And I see quite a lot of stuff on social media, the schools, when they receive their award they're posting stuff on social media and it's great i can still remember as a child growing up in cornwall going and doing stuff with the local parks department about involving trees and that stuck with me all this time so i'm really hoping that you can you know excuse the pun sow the seed mm. and it's not just tree planting is it i saw um, information about children doing tree surveys and all sorts of things yeah there's some you know there's some great quiz material there to get them to think about their environment we've done you know seed growing activities with them all sorts of things you know and tree identification there's loads of really good stuff there and you've given away you've enabled over one and a half million trees to be planted beyond your own land, didn't you, last year through schemes like this? Yes, yeah. You know, it is a it is quite a logistical exercise. We make sure we do a, an email follow up with all of the schools um, after every season to learn more lessons. And every probably two or three years, we do random selections of schools. So we'll get contractors to go and visit the schools to check on progress and again, learn lessons. You know, mm. we don't all get it right at all. There's always things you can do better. So can we provide better information to the schools about maintenance? Are the trees labelled clearly enough when they arrive? You know, all sorts of things like yeah. that. So it's a really good scheme. And tell us a bit more about the Moorwood scheme and about agroforestry. Um, the Moorwood scheme, as I say, it's, it's aimed at people who want to do sort of small um, areas of woodland. Uh, so it started off very much aimed at the sort of the hobby end of the market, I guess, with landowners who perhaps had some sheep and a few horses and a bit of land that they wanted to plant. So we've done probably about a thousand of those schemes in the 10 years that we've been ongoing. So if, if a landowner is interested, they can do a basic application online 
Um, we do various checks about you know, the historic environment, botanical checks online. If it looks like it's suitable, we then get one of our advisors will go out and meet them and talk to them, uh, do a design. And then we can, you know, they can either plant it themselves or we can provide a contractor for them to do that. So it's been a really good, good scheme. Out of that came then discussions about agroforestry. And you're right what you said earlier about, you know, a lot of this isn't new. We've just forgotten about it. So how you can combine trees to help improve um, shelter for outdoor lambing, for example. And we've been working with Bangor University on, on looking at some of the benefits for that. We've done work with Nottingham Vet School um, about benefits of tree fodder. Um, we managed to get some funding to, to help get more of these agroforestry schemes done. And it's been a really exciting area, looking at soil erosion benefits, pollination benefits. People forget when they talk about pollination, about the, you know how important trees are. So down where I live in Sussex, goat willow is out flowering in at the end of January, for example, mm. be very little other sources of pollen or nectar out. So, so trees can be really beneficial for all sorts of things. And of course, alleviate flooding. We've had so much flooding in recent years, haven't we? And particularly in Yorkshire and the north of England. And I see that also in your own land, you planted last year 805 hectares. Yes. Nearly one and a half million trees. So, you know, it's a massive contribution. Yeah, yeah, the estate is, um, you know, we're still actively acquiring land to create new woodland. So, you know, it's it's always been part of what we do. Uh, and I'm you know, really pleased to see there's still an appetite very much to keep that going. On the flooding side, we're doing some really interesting work up in Cumbria at a place called Malastang, um, working with Lancaster University to look at the, the, the impacts of slowing the flow, how that's going. And there's some great partnership work going on, you know, with the Rivers Trusts, for example. You know, they're a great organisation to work with. Catchment Sensitive Farming Group, we tend to be quite thinly spread. So being able to work in partnership with people who know the landowners, they're working on the ground already, you know, it's so much more effective. You have a lot of partners and the Woodland Trust has a podcast series with Adam Short. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. And the one I really enjoyed particularly was the one where the young people are making the decisions and it's a former coal mine that's been restored and it's called Mead Wood. And I really enjoyed hearing about the young people's enthusiasm for planting and looking after the wood and all the different roles that they have. That's been a huge success, hasn't it? I think as an organisation, we've been really good at working with those primary school children historically, but it's it's much more difficult, I think, to engage with children when they're in secondary school. You know, they've got a wider range of interests. It's much more difficult to engage with them. So the Mead, you know, we, we're learning, testing ideas out, but that's been a really big step forward. I I sincerely hope we can replicate that elsewhere and learn from that. Yes, because they've been coming up with ideas. And when you work with different groups who are outside of your normal silo, 
you know, there's a fresh way of thinking about things and uh, it's, it's really, really exciting. I mean, looking at the range of volunteers that you have as well, you have volunteers not only for tree planting, but also volunteer wardens. Tell us about all some of the different volunteer roles that, that work with the Trust. Yeah, so, it, you know, it's fantastic. So we obviously have quite a large estate ourselves. So um, we have a range of volunteer activities there doing all sorts of things from, you know, keeping footpaths open to checking sites, clearing litter and so on. So big range of activities there. But we have the observatory, people looking out for signs of disease, and the phenology project. So, you know, when trees first come out in leaf and comparing that with historic records, in, in my sort of area in the woodland creation field, we've got some fantastic volunteers who go out and talk to groups about the role that trees have, how they can go about it. They'll go into schools and talk to them about how to create their woodland. They'll check up on trees that have been planted previously. So, you know, and we also have, you might describe them as volunteers, you know, you might describe them as advocates in the farming world. We have some brilliant farmers who we've worked with historically, and they're really proud of what they've achieved. So they'll talk to other people about it. And, you know, it's so much better than if I turn up on somebody's door they know what I'm going to ask them to do. But farmer goes, you know, they have respect for that. So, yeah, we have a fantastic range of volunteers. It's really good. And you have a volunteer award as well. So I was looking on your website. There's a lady who won an award for social media, yeah. being active in that. Yeah. yeah. It seems to me that whatever your skill set is or whatever your, your ability is, some people are less physically able than others, you can get involved. It feels very inclusive. For me personally, it's really humbling. You know, I, I get paid to do what I, a job that I love, but these people are giving up their time free of charge. And you're right, we have a huge range of skill sets. We have some ex-scientists working at one of our sites. We've done some truffle inoculation on some of the trees. Oh. They've been behind all of that. I'm still waiting to see if there are any truffles arrived. They haven't yet. But Oh, that's interesting. I've just been reading about that in uh, Merlin Sheldrake's Sheldrake, book, yeah. Entangled Life. Brilliant book and a really interesting guy. So this has all been really positive so far, John, about, you know, we all know why we're doing it. You know how to do it. You've got... Um, funding and partners available to help you and so what are the barriers to the targets being achieved in terms of the woodland trust you can't speak for the nation certainly in my world when i'm dealing with other landowners outside of our estate it's really accessing land and persuading landowners that trees and woodlands are an option for them everything is politically up in the air at the moment you know with sort of leaving the eu so Farmers, for example, their single farm payments getting phased out. They don't know what's going to happen to the whole economy behind farming in terms of tariffs and stuff like that. So there's a lot of uncertainty around. So creating woodland is a long term decision. So people need to have feel confident about the future. There needs to be some stability there. So, so I think that uncertainty is certainly making people hesitate. I still think that the whole system around it is too bureaucratic. Um, there are reasons, you know, you need to do the checks around ecology, around archaeology. But I think landowners need much more of a mentoring and advice approach rather than a big stick approach. Not many landowners plant 
trees and woodland on a regular basis. So, you know, there, there are lots of uncertainties for them. They need help to get there. So that's why we need a really strong professional sector. Yes, we do. And it's been a recurring theme of the podcast that there aren't really enough people coming through. It's so heartening to hear about the work that the Woodland Trust and other organisations are doing with school children. But I did make the comment last week with Pete Wharton, you know, we actually need it to become popularist item on TV. You know, like I said, a character in a soap opera. It sounds daft, but I'm not joking. You know, something that people can think, oh, well, that character in EastEnders is is a tree officer. Um, and, and people can start seeing it as a career option beyond the country file programs, etc. Yeah. Talking about something almost entirely different about barriers. I mean, how is the tree stock going? Are the trees available to buy given the hot, dry summer and the pandemic? Really good question. And I think if you, you know, we talked earlier about those very ambitious plans of how many thousands of hectares are going to get planted every year and not having the appropriate tree stock um, the right species provenances objectives is going to be a real problem and I have heard anecdotally that numbers in Scotland you know in the nurseries in Scotland for example all the books are full nurseries that we've talked to before you know that have been very happy to work with us you know they, they've got their eyes on other markets now we need a strong nursery sector. We do. I'm really keen to see, you know, what, whatever, whether you plant native trees, whether you plant non-native trees, I would like to see as much of that grown in the UK as possible. I totally agree with you. It's really important for biosecurity. It's really important for our own genotypes and it's good for employment. Yeah, absolutely. You know, at a time, as I said earlier, where people have been made redundant from hospitality, there can be a skill swap, some retraining for those who know it's a job. And, you know, I worry about there not being enough UK-grown stock um, with this, this surge in demand and that's something that must be thought through. Is that something that the Woodland Trust can get involved with, actually sort of nursery production, or is that beyond your scope? You know, I think the lack of certainty for the nursery sector is really unhelpful for them. So again, you know, they need confidence to invest in the future. So we've tried to help that by having a number of long-term contracts with nurseries. So I think next year we'll probably be growing about 5 million trees under those contracts. The nursery profession is a really specialised profession. Mm. And I think it is better for us to work with and support that sector rather yes. than be directly involved in it ourselves. So, you know, there are some great nurseries out there, some really efficient ones. I'm always really scared about how tight the margins are for them. I wonder sometimes how they manage to keep going. But we work with some fabulous nurseries out there. What I suppose gives me some hope is that I think government, DEFRA, finally beginning to understand how important that sector is and hopefully will be prepared to invest in it. I do hope so, because um, it's going to be rather silly if we plant all these trees and we have to import them in. Yeah. Um, and we should be supporting our own our own UK nurseries. Absolutely. And what about innovations in terms of tree planting and tree shelters and reduced use of plastics? Huge issue. I feel we've been burying our heads in the sand, both as an organisation and a sector, 
for too many years now. So we have tried over the last probably five years various alternatives and in terms of tubes made out of other materials, none of them have proved robust enough. I think we're not understanding or or not wanting to understand why we have to have the protection there in the first place, because we've got, you know, uh, an excessive deer, rabbit population in particular. I think we need to wake up to the fact that we, you know, we can do things much better. We could use natural regeneration more if those grazing and browsing pressures were reduced. It's something we are now, I'm glad to say, more seriously looking at than we've ever done before. I know it's a difficult problem. And you talked then about natural regeneration. Um, As a Woodland Trust, are you creating woodland by natural regeneration? Is that part of your programme or is it was it tree planting on its own? Yeah, yeah. So we've we've always used natural regeneration um, where where we can, you know, ever since I started with the trust way back in the in the 1990s. Where I think things are different now is it's it's much higher up the agenda than it perhaps was before. You know, it was it was kind of a nice two rather than our first consideration. There are really good reasons to do it. It doesn't suit everybody. It doesn't suit every site. If you've got, say, strongly commercial objectives to grow, but it's perhaps not for you. Um, but as a an organisation driven as a with a primary objective of conservation, we should be doing more of it. You know, we are looking much more closely now at it than we've ever done before. It's in keeping with the rewilding approach, which is really sweeping through the UK, isn't it, as well? You're right, sometimes you need to see newly planted trees in the ground. Yeah, yeah. Politically with a small P. Yeah. Um, or, a- you know, because it's, we need that community engagement to help build a new local community. There are reasons why we do some things and not others. So, you know, I I fully accept that. I also enjoyed looking at your website, looking at the many different options for buying trees. I encourage listeners to have a look at that from an urban tree pack to trees for your garden to pollinator packs, etc. Real strong emphasis on British native trees and very affordable. I just wondered if there's going to be any thoughts about introducing non-natives given climate change, or is it too early to say what your views are on that? It's something that I discuss a lot at the moment. You need to go back to two things. One is your what your objectives are, the site that you're, mm-hmm. you're trying to plant. For us as a conservation organisation, I think native are still really important to us. Mm. You you look at the work of Joan Cottrell, for example, at Forest Research. You know, there is an element of adaptability, plasticity within our native species to enable them to adapt. The genetic diversity is there to enable them to adapt to climate change. But, you know, that's not for everybody. So, you know, if you're a commercial grower in East Anglia, for example, there's less risk there, for example. You may want to plant different species to meet your objectives, and they may well be non-native. Um, we do, you know, feature non-native trees, for example, in our agroforestry schemes. So things like walnut is quite a popular choice, for example. So one of my biggest frustrations in discussions with fellow professionals is that it has to come down to almost an argument about whether it's native or non-native and it shouldn't have to be 
urban areas, for example, non-native trees are great. Where would we be without them if you think of some of our urban treescapes? So... I'm based in a rural area near London and parts of London streets are arboretums yeah. almost. And they, they add so much to all those ecosystem services, sense of place. But finally, John, I always ask this question, what is your dream scenario? I, I guess it would be something along the lines of having trees and woods at the top of everybody's agenda so that everybody was thinking about them, be they a child at school to somebody who's retired or to a farmer. And for that person to be able to easily be able to do something that will involve trees. It might be planting, it might be knowing what species of tree they've got down their local street to being able to access an orchard where they can pick some fruit, anything, you know, so it's it's a much greater awareness about trees and that there are the tools there for people to engage with them um, with that interest. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. David Rose, a farm ambassador and from Farm Eco. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure, Sharon. Pleasure. Well, tell us about Farm Eco Community Care. It's the most incredible website. It's really exciting. Well, we're a, a farm uh, based in Nottinghamshire, uh, and we're a mixed farm. That means we're growing crops uh, and uh, have livestock. And uh, we're very an old-fashioned farm as well. My grandfather came in 1933, set off uh, with a milk round, and, and Gran used to go and pick uh, berries from the hedgerows and sell them and from the orchards and go and sell them on the local market. And so from 1933 all the way to 2020, things have changed a lot, but we've come back to, to our roots and come back to a mixed farming enterprise and using hedgerows and trees as a major part of what we do. We had a very large um, arable business where four farms came together and we, we focused on economy of scale and uh, it worked well for 12 years when we all enjoyed it and we, we, we did well but as as the farms developed and um we all wanted different things in the end and i've always been very passionate about the environment and also passionate about trying to get people out onto the farms to see where the, their funding for subsidies is going i've been a great uh, advocate of leaf linking environment and farming and open farm sunday um i did a, a nuffield scholarship in 2000 so i traveled all around the world looking at different ways of of, of good behavior and good farm practice of where people can link and reconnect to the, the supply chain and getting people out onto the farm was the best way I felt was reconnecting especially with children getting kids out onto the farm and, and teaching them in fact getting them involved was great because then they got the teachers involved in a lot of the ways and, and that's great because over the last 20 years we're now pushing against an open door teachers and schools are wanting to come out and see about the environment and trees and that sort of thing we've changed totally I, I've, I've now come back on I've been running the farm again for 12 years and have been very keen on, on looking at the whole environmental aspect. We've got sheep uh, and livestock back mm -hmm. onto the farm. But farming can be very, very uh, isolated and boring if you're not careful. So I've always been one for trying to get people involved on the farm. So creating a community enterprise and getting involved with local people has always been something they've been passionate about and that's evolved over the last 12 years we set up we've got the farm business which is um the own farm scraviton business and then we've got farm eco community care which is uh encapsulating many different aspects of, of community uh, enterprise and that's 
getting people on the farm to help plant trees, design uh, the woodlands that we do. Uh, we do a lot of work with mental health and well-being. We've got lots of work with schools. We've got the cider club, the apple pressing groups. So it's evolved. And the point I really want to make, though, is that we've always got to look at things economically, environmentally and socially. And that's to make sure that everything is driven economically and then environmentally and social. And, and the way we, get, we now work with trees and the Woodland Trust is a great way of being able to, to work towards those goals. Before we go on to the Woodland Trust, um, I was also interested in some of the other activities that you have. It's slightly off the topic here, but men in sheds. You've got Farm Eco writing competition for various age groups of children. You've mentioned the all-important cider club, Open Farm Sunday, a Regeneration Programme and the Nature Trail. Hugely diverse and I notice that you're really reaching out to different community groups who wouldn't ordinarily visit a farm. That really, really impressed me and that's been the theme of podcasts of ours before talking about green equity and and access to these spaces and, and education. It's brilliant. But the real reason for having this chat is your involvement with the Woodland Trust. So I know that you've planted 6.8 hectares of edible woodland with four and a half thousand different types of fruit and nut trees. So how have you worked with the Woodland Trust and now how do you work for them? But your story starts, I've always been loved trees. We've always planted trees, uh, but only in small numbers. And um, as I mentioned about my Nuffield scholarship, one of uh, the scholars came back and did a report on agroforestry, Stephen Briggs uh, from Cambridge, who is a phenomenal guy and a great guru for our, our industry. And he discussed agroforestry and, uh, I, I, and pointed out the Woodland Trust were a great ambassador for that. I came back, contacted the Woodland Trust, they came out. We looked at different options and um, we started uh, off by planting wildlife corridors. So we, we started planting off a, a plan to plant 15,000 trees in corridors around the farm in areas of the farm that probably weren't uh, so productive, but also were linking old traditional woodland. And what we tried to do was to create a, a nature trail from our eco centre and now our cafe right the way around. It's three and a half miles Round and, and we've used trees to, to create that wildlife corridor. I have to say we run a, a community shoot. We've got all local farms and local people on who get involved in it and they mm-hmm. help plant the trees, they plant the hedgerows, but they, they do shoot as well. So it helps towards that economic uh, viability. But the Woodland Trust then helped fantastically with Stuart uh, came and helped design it, talked you through the whole process that trees aren't just for Christmas, they're for life, you know, and that with custodians and, and this sort of thing and then I got really interested in in it and and then looked at the agroforestry uh, and and then we wanted to to link it in with the community and so by having apples and fruit and nut trees was a better way of linking in with the community because it's providing a, a product that we can make juice or cider or, or or harvest nuts and that's how it all started and it's gone on and on and we've done another scheme called the edible woodland which is four and a half thousand trees over a two-year period planting trees in the grass space forestry is in a uh, arable base which is uh, cereals and then this edible woodland is in a grass space and uh, so the sheep graze the the uh, grass and then we planted the trees around them and the biggest problem is is the guards and managing the guards and trying to keep the sheep and the grass and the, the nuts and the trees, all apple trees all growing together. And that's been quite a challenge. And 
we have lots of different visitors. I've got a group, to, a guy coming tomorrow to look from Worcestershire. Uh, and that's my role as an ambassador is to try and show different woodland systems, um, warts and all, whether they're working or how you can how you can work towards making trees a viable part of, of a farming business. What have you learned from, from your role as a Woodland Trust Ambassador? I've learned that you have to think long term. You have to think, why am I doing this? And then you also need to make sure that your next generation is buying into it because the trees aren't just for one generation, they're for, our, you know, for, for many generations. And, and my son's not working on the farm, but uh, my daughter, but they're still passionate about what we do. But my grandson, who's seven, is, and he comes with us all the time and his friends have been and helped plant the trees. And if you can get the kids involved, you know, and, and, and get them in from an early age, they'll buy in and, and that gives you the a passion and the energy to keep keep going but again sit down make sure that you've got a plan to look at the whole aspects of where you what you what returns you want at the economic return the environmental return or the social return how you're going to how you're going to get that back the woodland trust are fantastic at all aspects of, of the uh of planting trees getting the trees to you what we've had to learn and what i say to them is it's the management of the trees it's not just planting the trees, it's pruning them, making sure that they're looking after them. And, and what I say to anybody is there's thousands and thousands of great farmers out there looking after animals and livestock and crops. Don't just think trees are something you can plant and forget. They're not. You've got to actually manage them, look after them, look after those areas underneath the trees, the, the green cover and the wildflowers and all the other things that you might do to them. And have a, have make sure that you as a farm and a family have enough time to carry out that management because there's nothing worse than having uh, thousands of trees being planted and then just seeing them die because you haven't had the time to water them or manage them. We've had a great learning curve uh, that, you know, you plant them all, you think you're all doing well, you turn your back and the next minute there's voles eating the base of the trees that you think you've got all the right guards in place, but it's a continual learning experience. Um, but I love it. We've just been down there today with a small group of volunteers working within COVID restrictions apart from each other. But it's great. And even on a Monday morning, getting out makes everybody feel good that they're actually doing something and it's growing some, some, something for the future. I'm now interested in the technical side of protecting the trees and where you're planting the trees amongst the sheep. What sort of size are you planting? Are you planting whips? Or larger? No, no, the more the more standards. Uh, we have had some whips, but they're about four four foot. We've tried so many different guards, but every tree from uh, a walnut to a cherry to a uh, apple to a pear to a seed buckthorn to a quince, a lot of them need different guards, and you just can't think you can get away with one guard. So I think that's been the, the biggest experience because. Mm. If you put a tubex guard over a tree with lots of leaves and they can't breathe, it'll just they'll rot and they won't grow. So we've had to we're having to adapt many different ways of guarding. So we've got the tubex wrapped around the base to protect the base, and then we've got different guards as you go up. Um, what you have to think about as well, the, the, the steel guards that you, you can actually put around that are six foot six tall, they would be fantastic, but they cost about 30, 40 pounds. I know. It's by far the most expensive part of actually the tree planting, isn't it? So our, our vision is to try and make this uh, affordable and a benefit to lots of different farmers. Uh, so if you've got the base costs that you can't, that aren't um, 
sustainable, then nobody's going to plant trees, are they? So it's got to be working towards a sustainable model. And um, I think now with the whole fact that in the last few years, more and more people are interested in carbon and, and natural capital and, and the whole biodiversity of farms, trees play a pivotal role in all those aspects that farmers now are starting to wake up to. The living, healthy soil, you know, protecting water runoff and and all the different things, trees trees in the right place can play such a pivotal part of a, an economically viable farming system. So, David, the Wooden Trust provide grants as well for supplying the trees. Did you use that system? And how was it for you if you did? Yes, we did. We, on both, uh, on both uh, the agroforestry uh, and the ed- edible wood. And the agroforestry was a project that they helped fund, and it was through a core hotels, Novotel, Ibis, and that sort of thing. So we've had lots of visits from hotel groups, and that was great. Um, we couldn't do it without the funding. It wouldn't be possible, I don't think, on the scale that we've done it. Or we wouldn't have probably gone down the route uh, because it is a great expense. Uh, and I think what we're trying to show now is once you've got them in place and we can prove a business model that, that actually worked, then people will might go into it without the funding. You know, we can see it works, but we've got to go through all those problems and issues so we can actually say to farms, but if you do it this way, we can clearly show you a, a way that's going to make it economically viable. But to answer your question, yeah, the Woodland Trust have been fantastic supports uh, economically providing the trees and the guards and the states but we've provided all the labor by getting workshops and activity groups and, and people from the local schools right through to our men in sheds team which are sort of 60 to 85 coming out helping with the guards and planting so that that's how it works they provide the trees we provide the labor Sounds like you've got a really good body of research about planting trees and caring for them with the different browsers, in a way, that you have with those trees. Sounds almost like a research project. Are you feeding that back to the farming community about this worked for me and this definitely didn't work for me? Isn't That's a really, really good question. And yes, we are. We are doing quite a lot of on all aspects of that. So um, as part of the agroforestry, we're working with a, a young a guy from Reading University, Tom Stanton, who's been um, doing research on the agroforestry field uh, and measuring that against the monoculture field next door to it. So you've got 15 acres of agroforestry and you've got 15 acres of monoculture growing just crops. And he's measuring uh, the um, the different insects that are having habitat within the agroforestry against that in the edible woodland, in the monoculture. And also with, within our own team, we're measuring the wind speeds, the, the, the temperatures uh, and all sorts of other things as well within the microclimate of the agroforestry against a, a monoculture field. But we've got a great team now of, of volunteers that are getting involved in the farm, adding from lots of different walks of life, from a retired judge and a retired cancer professor at a, un- a local university hospital to people who have come from the retail sector and all sorts of different businesses. And I think at the time, what's happening is that lots of people are starting to think, you know, with, with COVID and everything, is the career that they're doing actually what they're wanting to do and making them want to work outside. So we're looking at doing a whole sort of research project, looking at the whole biodiversity and measuring them the natural capital of what we're doing, tying in the, the things that we've described, but getting the kids out, counting the worms, counting the bugs, counting the butterflies, 
right the way through to capturing what we're doing with carbon and soil and trees and trying to get an, a, a, an overall value of, of what we've got on the farm. So once the government have got themselves sorted out and, and, and we know what the payment structures are going to be in the future, we hopefully have got the armory to say, this is what um, that we're doing. And by the way, we're measuring it against somebody nearby who's doing it without trees and doing it on a more monoculture so it can clearly show the benefit of, of growing and working with trees. Uh, it's that business case that's really going to make it work for the farming community. You know, they've got to be able to see in black and white the benefits, not just um, ecologically, but also how it can work for them financially. Sharon, you, you're dead right. It's got to be simple as well because the, the things get so complicated and we start talking about all these new words that we're starting to, to hear banded about now. But it's got to be, I'm not saying farmers need things sim simplified, but it needs to be straightforward. So it's clear instructions and clear benefits. And so we can follow, you know, follow your guidelines and, and work towards, you know, a, a really good future. And one of the other things I've picked up from that conversation was you've also created a real social diversity. You know, you spoke about the um, retired judge and people coming from retail and looking at your website and the different types of groups of people you work with. How often do you get those different types of people from all sorts of walks of life working together for a common aim? I think that's really quite rare. No, I think I think it's right. And one of the key issues at the moment is we aren't able to have all the groups out. But, but the one thing about volunteering is that we are seem to be exempt at the moment. So if you're volunteering and coming out and picking apples and pressing them and doing all the work on the farm, as long as we're adhering to you know COVID restrictions and, uh, and masks and washing hands, which we are doing, we're able to continue. And we have to be very careful. You know, we're not doing it every day, but uh, it is so important. And they love people just love having that opportunity to come out and doing something worthwhile. But you're right. We we do a lot of work. We have done a lot of work with the black and ethnic communities within Nottingham, and we've got great links with some charities in Nottingham. I learned so much. Farmers always think that they know more or we think we know more. But having people come out who know nothing about farming and question, why do you do it that way? And you think, well, actually, because we've always done it that way. Well, have you tried doing it this way or looking at it from a different angle? It's it's very interesting. But you are right. And it's it's great to have many different walk, different people from all walks of life coming together. And, and you're really helping with people's mental health as well. Perhaps people are on furlough. Or maybe they've sadly been made redundant. Um, so getting out there getting mud on your hands and learning a new skill and making new friends, albeit socially distanced, fantastic. So finally, David, what is your dream scenario? I've often asked that because people are saying, where do you, where, where do you want this to go? And I think somebody that has been in farming for three generations now and now I've got my, my, my grandchildren are interested in, my dream is to create a community-based farming structure that does work for, for many different people. So it's a hub of activity for, we have now a gym on the farm, we have a cafe, we have an education centre, we have a cider group, we have a shoot, and we have a farm that is hopefully making money through animals and through, through crops. So my dream is for that to continue and to have this group of people who will continue to work together to work towards uh, an environmental, sustainable biodiverse uh, community that's producing fantastic food, working towards carbon neutral, 
uh, and working towards the health and well-being of a community and the wider wider community. That's my dream and uh, what gets me up every morning and, and keeps me going. And uh, I think having the grandkids there and, and, and like this group now coming in and inspiring you and keeping your energy. I don't take that for granted. I, I, I do really appreciate it because I know there's so many great farming people out there that are struggling to create a living and they're having to do it on, on, on their own or in a very, very tight bubble. And sometimes it's just man and his wife or, uh, and, you know, they don't have that opportunity to, to share problems and discuss issues. And it's, it can, can be a real problem. So, you know, we, I do count myself very lucky, but I'm going to keep getting up and driving on and trying to, to create that, uh, that hub for people to come and be involved in. Thank you so much, David. I feel I need to have a glass of cider after all of that. Sadly, I haven't got any. <laughs> and I can't go to the pub. No, well, we'll have to get you some sometime. <laughs> you have to come and visit sometime. Yes, I will do once we're out and about. Well, what an absolute privilege to speak to you. What a fantastic advocate for the Woodland Trust and farming in general. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you, Sharon. I think it's been good talking to you. Joe Coles, who leads the Woodland Trust Urban Programme. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. You're more than welcome. It's, a, it's an honour to be here. <laughs> um, tell us your job title, please. So I'm the Urban Programme Lead for the Woodland Trust. So that, that means that I deal with campaigns in particular um, uh, for communities fighting to protect their trees, but also to get more trees in the ground. Great. Sounds absolutely brilliant. What's your background? So I come from a local authority background as a conservation officer, um, but I spent quite a lot of time studying environmental science, conservation and landscape architecture. So I've worked in civil service and quite a few of the, the industries that, that relate to urban trees in particular. Tell us about some of the larger project work that you've been doing. I think you've been involved with Sheffield, haven't you? Yes, so Sheffield was, was the, the very start of the urban of the urban program so it, it's what inspired the woodland trust to to get into this field of forestry we were receiving significant uh, inquiries from the public trying to request our help to to prevent the felling of trees across the city so we were there for support spending a lot of time trying to talk to the council influence lobbying politicians to try to get some sort of resolution to the situation because trees were being unnecessarily felled across the city it caused so much stress as well, didn't it, for the people living in the area. It was astonishing to, to hear what was going on. Some resolution has been reached and presumably you worked well with other organisations who have the same aim, like STAG, for example. The Sheffield Tree Action Groups were, you know, we were in quite close close communications with them. We weren't in a position to do very much kind of on-the-ground activism. We did have a decent communication with other organisations too. So Trees for Cities, the local Sheffield and Rotherham Wildlife Trust. It was really important both for the residents of the city, but also for each of our organisations that there was, there was some collaboration and it really gave credibility to the campaign that was happening on the ground. 
it's so important, isn't it, to work together with, with something that seemed such an unsolvable problem for a long time. And do you feel through working with others, you've actually learnt and taught each other as a group? You know, you've all benefited from collaboration with those other NGOs. Yeah, very much so. And and what's really exciting at the moment is there there is a partnership locally that has developed the the new Sheffield Street Tree Strategy, which is specifically about the trees and the highway network. It's quite heartening to see that the council and its contractors and members of the, the community are all represented on that partnership. And it's only got scope to grow further. What other projects are you working on at the moment? Off the back of what was happening in Sheffield, um, we get inquiries from across the UK. Sadly, we, we can't deal with all of them, but the intention is we want to work to to try and make the system change that's needed to, to prevent these sort of conflicts happening in the future. So it is about the policy influencing, helping councils write tree strategies wherever possible and encouraging community engagement, because that's one of the, the key issues that, that underpins most of the the tree conflicts that, that I come across. I think that the tree strategies and community engagement should go hand in hand. And it's almost a two-way process, isn't it? You know, the council should listen to the community and write something and the community should hopefully listen to the expertise of the council and, and meet a common ground there. There is really a very patchy picture across the United Kingdom with tree strategies. But do you find that one of the barriers to a tree strategy is not lack of intent, but actually lack of resources within local authorities? Yes, it's the qualified tree officers, it's the budgets and, you know, it all goes hand in hand. The maintenance of trees requires that resource. We don't want to see a dash for planting that's not thoroughly thought out. And again, that's where a tree strategy can really help you know the right tree in the right place and for the right reasons i think that's something that's needed across the board are you influencing policy in terms of new development about retaining trees and planting new trees is that part of your remit yes we're currently going through a process of reviewing our urban tree strategy it's very likely that we, we need to be thinking about the tree line streets bill for example and to try and maximize new trees in development but it's also about trying to influence developers and planning authorities to make sure that wherever possible existing trees are retained because you know we're we're very aware of the fact that to really build the urban forest to combat climate change we need the trees that are already doing that hard work on the ground and to be planting more. Yes, that's right. So it takes a long time for a new tree to provide those ecosystem services that a tree's been lost. I mean I work in the construction and development industry as my client base and, you know, sometimes trees do need to be removed, but hopefully it's the lowest quality trees on a site and, you know, we should really be looking at keeping the mature trees and keeping a good soil space around them. And one of the concerns of mine is actually the sort of soil that we're planting our new trees in as well. How are you contacting developers and planning authorities as a, as a Woodland Trust to try and make those positive changes? Currently, that's something that we need to, we need to scope out with our, with our urban strategy, how we might approach doing such a thing, because there is a risk when it comes to development that communities are really shocked when they see trees removed. Yes. For the Woodland Trust to have been involved in a process where you know we might be supporting the removal of some trees, it can be a dangerous place for a, an NGO to be in if we don't have that expertise 
backed up by you know the rest of the sector so a lot of what we're doing at the moment is campaigning you know having that knowledge sharing research and understanding of, of what really needs to change to, to get solutions in place and I also listened to your podcast the Woodland Trust podcast and you're on that with Adam Shaw and in that episode you were showcasing a tree planted in Leeds uh, a London plane tree and tell us what was special about that it, it was the amount of investment that actually went into planting it. So it, it was given the appropriate soil volumes and underground infrastructure to support the, the growth of that tree to maturity. So it's the Dortmund Square tree right in the centre of, of my home city, as it happens. And it was a really great example. I mean, I know it's a case study in trees in a hard landscape, a guide for delivery. As a, a, a showcase of, of how it can be done, even in the hardest environment, there was no soil to begin with. Uh, that's really encouraging because uh, probably like many listeners, I'm trying to get more trees planted in streets. You know, even if there's a political will and the money, the actual logistics of looking underneath the pavement, seeing the multitude of services and the competing demands, it's a real challenge. But we've got great systems now that we didn't have, say, 10 years ago, which are highly developed to make sure that they can be properly constructed shared space. So that's encouraging. And it's good to see the Woodland Trust championing that as well. How do you work with your volunteers in the, the work that you do? It's slightly different to what the rest of the Woodland Trust campaigning system is, is like. So when we campaign to save ancient woodland, for example, we do have volunteers who will go and look at planning applications and they will respond to certain applications on our behalf. With the urban trees, because it is quite a new program for the Woodland Trust, we tend to work more closely with community groups these might be people who just are upset by the removal of trees on their street they don't necessarily understand the rules the regulations all too often that i come across a community group that has been consulted once the decision to remove trees has already been made so part of my work is to support those groups where possible the best thing about my job is that because i have quite a large organization behind me it gives confidence to residents that actually they're not alone in the in the conversations because it goes back to that understanding between the tree experts and the decision makers and the residents if the residents don't know what they're being asked to decide on it's so easy for for them to be surprised when the chainsaws start and trees are removed that's such a good point so really it can be the first time that somebody's really thought about trees is when the trees outside their window are under threat. And it is a minefield for people. I mean, those of us who work in the industry think, well, of course people understand about the legislation and the value of these trees, but not everybody does. And to have that trusted brand, as it were, with the Woodland Trust as a friendly arm around the shoulders to, to really listen, I think it's it's really important because... People get really emotional, don't they, at these times? They do. And, and it, you know, it, it can just be they, they enjoyed the blossom of a tree, the sense of wildlife on their doorstep. That might be as far as their appreciation went until the risk of them being removed. And that's when people start to look into the, the wider benefits that they're losing. And especially when, you know, if a tree's been on your street ever since you've lived there, you know that tree as a, as a, a friend or as a, a neighbour. It's not. It's not just a, a, a flower that can be replaced without 
actually any sense of loss. How do you see your role in the Woodland Trust as really helping local authority tree officers? I will ask for information about why trees are being removed, for example. And I will look through that and, and try and explain that on behalf of the tree officers. More often than not, it's, it's accepted when it's properly explained. Also, your role, is it one of education about the value of trees in our urban areas? We're very keen to work with other organisations to gather more information about urban trees and to share that with, with local authorities who don't necessarily have the technical expertise themselves so it could be sharing examples of tree strategies with them or policies but it can also be you know raising awareness in communities of of the benefit of the trees that they've got and and why they need to stand up and ask for more. The Wooden Trust website has a great page on your research and development with downloadable guides and I think that kind of support for people say who work in the industry who are hugely busy and under pressure knowing that they can go onto your website, almost like a hub, and find that information is really great. So you've been working really hard on Sheffield. You've been a comforting arm around protesters who are concerned about tree loss in their area, providing information and lobbying. But what's next for your role? What's your burning issue right now? So we really wanted to develop a research and information hub that, that's more urban specific. We also want to, uh, to prioritise the, the system change, so the policy changes in local government, but also at national government. And we want to drive for increased canopy cover across the UK, but for me specifically in local authorities. And finally, what is your dream scenario? My dream scenario is that all parties involved in in trees and tree conflict and positive tree partnerships actually recognise where the other people are coming from. Empathy about the loss of trees from decision makers and, and specialists, highways engineers, for example, but also greater understanding of the technical challenges that those professionals also face among communities so that both parties have that that shared understanding of where everyone's coming from. Yes, that's an absolutely great dream scenario and one that's very difficult to do, but you have to keep trying, you have to keep positive, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You're well, welcome. Thank you. And finally, Olivia Ransom, a teacher from Poplar Farm School. And we hear from her what the children think about being outside with nature. Tell us, where do you work and what is your job? Hi, so I am a teacher at Poplar Farm Primary School in Grantham. So I actually teach reception, but at the moment we've only got three year groups. We're a fairly new school. You've recently been taking part in the Woodland Trust School Scheme. Tell us what you've been doing. As I say, we are a fairly new school. So we've been open, well, two and a half-ish years. So we've got three year groups now. Um, But we've actually been involved with the Woodland Trust ever since we opened. When we first opened, school had already been signed up to take part in the Green Tree Award with the Woodland Trust. They gave us some trees to plant. So actually, even when we first opened, the Woodland Trust were involved and they were supporting our development we're very keen and are always working on being an eco school and developing our outdoor areas um, for the children and for learning when we first opened the woodland just gave us some trees we were able to get parents involved in coming in and planting those as well it's a really lovely award it just covers all manner of things we get parents involved it teaches the children things but it also allows them 
to take ownership in developing that outdoor area, which is really important. And it's so good for children to get their hands dirty and learn something practical, isn't it, rather than just be in the classroom? It is. And I myself, I grew up on a farm. When I'm at school, I'm like, should we go outside? Let's go outside. So it's been really lovely to join a school that are so focused on developing all that outdoor area. Have you noticed that children sort of learn better if they've had a bit of time outside? I think that is definitely true. Even for some children, just the fact that they can be a bit more active when they're outside. There's more space. Yes. But, you know, there's countless studies and research about how important learning outdoors and nature is for children's well-being. And obviously, as as a school, as teachers, the most important thing is children's well-being. Everything else comes next. Absolutely. You won't learn without that in place first. It, it just provides so many opportunities. You can teach any lesson outside. I think that's something that you kind of forget is you can teach maths outside. And there are a lot of children who are absolutely fine in school. But the minute you get them outside, you kind of see them light up. They're so much more engaged and with that exploration and the fact that they can nurture all those curious thoughts by exploring outside to do those lessons. It's really lovely to have areas and to have a head teacher that is so keen on, yeah, if you want to take them out, you take them out. As you say, being outside, you can teach anything. And I also think with trees, that really every part of the curriculum is covered by trees one way or the other, be it writing about them, drawing them, counting, science. We do a topic per term for each year group. In year one, their topic this term is called, where did all the leaves go? And their, their entire topic, all of their learning is related to trees and nature and that you, they really are teaching everything from that perspective. And have you found the information on the Woodland Trust website and the school packs helpful? Yes, it has been really helpful, especially because we've had so much involvement from them ever since we opened with all the Green Tree Awards. Anything that we need or anything we're unsure about, we can always go to them. This term, one of the things that we set reception Um, over that half-term holiday was to go on an autumn walk and to collect up lots of natural objects and then they brought them back into school and we built a bug hotel. Oh brilliant. I used all of the Woodland Trust information to support building that and to talk through through it with the children. They've got lovely resources, they even have printable scavenger hunts and suggestions for activities you can do with different age groups. It's, It's a really wonderful resource. And during lockdown, I think you kept the children busy as well, didn't you? Tell us about that. We do have a Green Tree Platinum Award now, but we were still working on building that. So it was really lovely that we were able to carry that through lockdown with the children all being at home. We set them all a tree dressing challenge around Easter. Um, Lots of them made natural decorations or they hung eggs on the trees and sent us all photos in and then we were able to talk about those what else do we set them like a viewfinder challenge to go on walks or go in their garden um, and draw pictures and take photos of things they'd seen from different angles um, which is just another way of getting them getting them to observe what's around them so you'd recommend schools getting involved with nature and the woodland trust we have used the woodland trust so i would definitely recommend them because they've helped our school developed that kind of eco ethos um, in a really big way and they're just really helpful within the green tree as well we ha- we've had people from the woodland trust come into school and um, last year they came in and did a whole assembly for year one when they did their pocket and we're able to share that with them all the time we even got a parent that works for the woodland trust and she said 
there was a comment through lockdown she's like it's lovely to see that you're still carrying this on whilst the children are at home but it's it's just as important isn't it to get parents involved if we want to nurture a love of outdoors and of nature it's not just about school it's about our world and that needs to come from home as well. So do you have anything that the children have said to you that's just really brought it home to you how great it is for having an eco ethos? Across the whole school we all use outside and we utilise those spaces for our lessons. When I've spoken to the children the, the main thing that most of them say about outside is that it makes them happy and I think that's really important and it's it's really special that something so simple makes such a big difference. Um, I have made some notes about some of the things they said. One of our little girls said that she was really excited to tree the, see the trees grow and see all the different coloured leaves which was really lovely to hear because actually it's not just about playing it's about learning as well. One of my little girls said, if we've got more trees, then then more bugs can live at our school, which again is something really sweet. And that was one of the children that helped build the bug hotel as well. So it's making those links between the benefits of nature, not just for us, but for little creatures that might enjoy it as well. That's really great. And how things have changed. When I was at school in the 1970s, if if children in the playground saw bugs, they went, let's run away let's run away and now thank heavens people are just fascinated because oh my goodness if we don't look after our insects we're all in trouble well it's just great to hear that the young of today are in such brilliant hands so thank you no thank you say that's really whetted our appetites here at tree lady talks we've just become a supporter of the woodland trust via their website woodlandtrust.org there's so many other things you can do have we got our christmas cards yet i've just bought them just in the nick of the time from from the woodland trust of you course. never have and you can't beat a tea towel oh by the way what do you think of what's playing behind you i think it's good i like them It's the special Woodland Trust theme tune, performed by the Tree Lady Talks in-house band. Fantastic. You know, there are so many ways you can get involved with the Woodland Trust. You can buy trees for your garden. If you're a school, you can buy tree packs. You can buy trees for a larger area of land. You can buy gifts for friends and family. But it's a volunteering that really caught my imagination fantastic amount of volunteers and they are just incredible people i love the fact that if you're a volunteer who wants to plant trees you can get involved if you like social media that if that's for you that's your skill you can get involved if you like campaigning researching looking at planning applications There are just infinite ways and it's really properly organised and looked after by the Woodland Trust. And it's great that you don't actually have a garden if you live in a flat, if you live on the 13th floor or somewhere, you can go down to these places and just get involved with them with car parking and just help them out. It's brilliant, isn't it? It makes it really equitable 
and it's so good for people to get to know new people and have new skills as well it's it's kind of a great friendly thing to do awesome awesome well i hope you've all enjoyed that obviously go to tree lady talks to download all the other episodes in this first season which has been quite astonishing really has been fabulous we had a wonderful email didn't we the other day now yes we certainly did we've been picked up by the bbc and <laughs> we're going to be featured on what tree lady we're going to be featured on the podcast radio hour on bbc radio 4 extra out today which is the 27th available to download on bbc sounds it's a special on Trees and Forests podcast for National Tree Week. We are thrilled to bits. So make sure you tune in tomorrow and listen to it. Yes, or you can download it from BBC Sounds. So what on earth have we got coming up to top that? Well, we've got two shorter episodes coming up very soon. I can almost hear the band cheering now. <laughs> the first one is with Henry Kuppen from the Netherlands to talk about tree health and the following one is going to be with Jonathan Drury about his book Around the World in 80 Trees and then after that we are going to have a series in collaboration with the Institute of Child of Foresters with people featuring in the Trees People and Built Environment conference and we've got other guests lined up in fact we're booked up until the end of February we're going to have Tony Kirkham, MBE from Kew Gardens. We've got a packed schedule, so thank you for listening. So it's goodbye from the tree lady. And it's goodbye from him. And it's goodbye from the band. Goodbye. Bye. Oh, don't forget, if you want to get in touch, go to our website, SharonHosegoodAssociates.co.uk, Tree Lady Talks, and send us your feedback. Facebook, Sharon Hosegood Associates. Twitter. Twitter? Yeah, at the Tree Lady 67. Instagram? Tree Lady Talks. I think that's all the social media I can handle at the moment. Right, I'm just going to check that the broadband's not smoking and uh, we will see you next time. Shut the door on your way out.